Welcome back to another Four Minutes of Threads. Our last episode ended with Ruth, in her desperation, being forced to sell her body to a man in exchange for three dead rats. And as she conducted this awful transaction, we saw people shuffling around, dragging carts and carrying bags. It seems that some kind of rough marketplace, some kind of trading has sprung up. I suppose a black market always springs up in wartime, a way to get past all the shortages and rationing. Well, here we have the very blackest of markets. If we think back to life on the home front during the Second World War, people often thought of the black market as something wrong, yes, Something against the rules, obviously, but maybe it was okay once in a while. If you wanted a nice bit of steak or some cosmetics to treat the wife or girlfriend, that kind of thing. With women largely being the ones who were running the home and organising the coupons and the rations, the authorities tried to appeal to them particularly to steer clear of black market goods. In July 1944, Detective Sergeant Compton of Scotland Yard demonstrated the dangers of buying black market perfume. He held a bottle of the dodgy perfume in his hand at a West London police station and demonstrated for the newspapers how the liquid inside would stain a piece of paper. He said... Women don't realise what they are buying when they spend their money on this stuff. In a similar vein, the Daily Mirror in September 1943 said, Women are warned by the Board of Trade to be doubly careful for the next four months when selecting lipsticks, face powders and beauty cream. This was because regulations were coming into force to compel those who were selling beauty products to carry the maker's name and address on the bottle or on the packet. But until that rule comes into place, women should beware. Quote, it is during this period that the beauty racketeers may try to clean up a final heavy profit before trying other fields. The article warns women that these beauty racketeers have been selling Black boot polish as an eyeshadow, animal fats as skin tonics, and lacquer paint as nail varnish. And there were warnings that black market cosmetics could cause skin diseases. However, the Ministry of Supply decided to allow more factory canteen shops to sell cosmetics, the real thing, as it was found that, quote, this experiment has helped the morale of women workers. So that was the way around uh, women being tempted by black market lipstick and face powder. Scare them off the dodgy stuff, and then allow them to buy a little bit of this and that in the factory canteen. So there was no sense of evil about the black market. Buying something that way could mean dealing with a so-called spiv on the street corner or just giving a, a nod and a wink to your local shopkeeper 
who might have been able to keep something nice behind the counter for favoured customers. And it was done mainly for luxury items, uh, the lipsticks, the perfume, the steak, the salmon. No one in wartime Britain was buying and selling, trading and cheating in order to live, to survive. But here we have Ruth selling her body for rats. She's clearly facing starvation otherwise. She is clearly close to death. And if she is close to death, it means her child is close to death. So that is where we finished on the last four minutes episode. Picking up from there, the scene changes. And we see a still image of the sky. And do you know what? The sky almost looks nice. We see lots of high stacked clouds, which yes, are very thick and dark. But there's a break in the clouds and sunlight is streaming through. When sun rays break through clouds in this manner, they are known as crepuscular rays and are often used in films or comics to suggest heaven, uh, miracles, a revelation, a new beginning. But in threads, of course, the sunbeams do not bring hope or heaven or happiness. In fact, the sun brings danger and death. The silent blue text on screen tells us, skies become clearer, returning sunlight now heavier with ultraviolet light. NASA tells us that the sun emits plenty of harmful ultraviolet light, but the worst of it is mercifully absorbed by the ozone layer before it can reach us down here on Earth. But in threads, we are dealing with a nuclear winter, and so ozone depletion would allow far more of the bad stuff to reach us. The sun is now pumping harmful UV radiation right at us, and we are lacking the shield that we used to have. For an excellent explanation of the theory of nuclear winter, I direct you to an episode that you'll find in the archive called Christmas Special Nuclear Winter with Dr Steve Arnold. Here's a clip where Dr Arnold explains the the weird sky we see at this point in Threads. Have you seen the the film Threads, Steve? Oh, yes, yeah, I'm familiar with it, yeah. Okay, well, um, in threads, uh, we see this, we see some shots of the sky, and it's all it looks textured. It looks like it's yeah. um, the sun starting to break through. I think it's maybe like ten years after the attack, the sun is starting to break through. But the sky that we see in the film almost looks pretty. It's full of like, lots of flushed pink and the sunlight yeah. breaking through. In any other context, it might be pretty. So, do we know? I know this is impossible to answer, but are there any <laughs> ideas of what the sky? might look like during a nuclear winter? Would we get the, the fantastic sunsets that we sometimes get after volcanoes? Would it be like that? Yeah, so I, I think volcanoes give us a nice analogue here, probably. I mean, um, yeah, so it's important to recognise, I guess, that if you have the if you have this material, this smoke up there in the stratosphere, you know, the main consequence of that is going to be to reduce what we would perceive as, as kind of sunlight coming into the surface. Okay, so we're going to kind of see a dimmed atmosphere 
um, kind of, you know, what you might see in, in twilight or, you know, where, where it's just a kind of bit dusky, a bit dark. Um, and that's just the kind of direct, what we call dimming of the, the incoming, incoming sunlight. Um, however, as you rightly say, what we do know as well about kind of the impacts of these, these smoke particles in the atmosphere, they, they scatter um, sunlight and they di scatter different wavelengths of sunlight in a different way. Um, and that's what can give rise to these kind of pretty colors that you're describing. So if we have a lot of material up there in the stratosphere, um, and then we have the sun um, shining through that, and especially if we have the sun um, beginning to set or go to kind of lower on the horizon, um, then we might start to see kind of really kind of vivid colors imparted by the scattering of, of sunlight by, by the particles in the atmosphere. And we know from, you know, during the, the Mount Pinatubo eruption, which was a big volcanic eruption that occurred um, in 1991, you know, there, there were reports, very widespread reports of kind of very vivid sunsets and colors um, due to this layer of, um, of, of, of ash and volcanic material um, in the atmosphere. It's also interesting actually from that event, we know that um, astronauts on the, on the International Space Station, I mean, they were able to see this layer of, um, of volcanic material very high up in the atmosphere. So, you know, from the space station, as they looked out in a kind of just across the Earth's atmosphere, they could see the very thin atmospheric layer that we're all familiar with from these kind of very um, striking images that we've seen, these images that we've seen from the space station. But you can see two very dark bands, which are this, this layer of material in the upper atmosphere from, the, um, from volcanic eruptions as they happened. So uh, it's likely that, you know, the, well, maybe, maybe if there were people on the International Space Station, they would get a really good kind of good view of what this kind of global scale effect was on the on the upper atmosphere but certainly from the surface from the ground if we were looking up we would expect i think yes to see kind of really visual effects from from this material being high up in the atmosphere the scene changes we see the fields and trees of course the trees having been burned and blasted, now look like black, frazzled sticks. Spread out across the field are labourers, people who are swaddled in clothing and masks and goggles and sunglasses, trying to protect themselves from the harsh UV light as they farm the land. Farming the land in a nuclear winter seems to mean Hacking and poking and scraping at it, gouging at it, begging something to please, please sprout from the cold ground. And as always with threads, we can see that Mick Jackson did his research. The farm workers we see here who are wrapped up and protected is actually how civil defence guidance for farmers advised that they dress after a nuclear war. I describe it in my book, Attack Warning Red, that farmers were particularly encouraged to get back to work as quickly as possible after nuclear attack, as they, of course, are the producers and the, the gatherers of the nation's food. There will be no more food imports, of course, no more factories creating processed food. So once the stockpiles run out, it will all be down to the land and what the farmer can eke from it and from his surviving animals. So farmers were given particularly detailed advice, and some of it was that 
when they go back out into their fields, they wear wellies, they bundle themselves up in layers, they put on goggles to shield their eyes and plug their ears with cotton wool. I have a copy of my book here and I will read to you the bit where we describe the nightmarish image of the farmer stalking his radioactive fields. I'll read it to you here. You'll find it on page 86 if you have a copy. More advice on how to prepare farms and their animals for nuclear attack was provided in 1961 by an information film called Home Defence and the Farmer. The message was that the farmer had a responsibility not only to himself and his family, but also to his herd. The animals would be essential, as nuclear conflict would most likely bring Britain's food imports to an end. The farmer must therefore protect his animals and humanely dispose of those desperately injured or made sick by fallout. The film showed the countryside after nuclear attack being as lush and green as it ever was. Perhaps playing on the popular perception of war as something that affected only cities, industrial areas and key infrastructure, with the enemy unlikely to show interest in meadows and orchards. Propaganda in the Great War had urged men to enlist and fight to defend a Britain that was portrayed on the recruitment posters as bucolic and Arcadian and littered with thatched cottages that seemed to come straight out of a Thomas Hardy novel. Your country's call, isn't this worth fighting for? The poster asked. Even though the majority of fighting men were for poor urban areas, I would never have eaten fruit freshly plucked from the tree. Yet they were told that this was the real Britain. Here was the ideal they had to defend and preserve. In a similar way, while home defence and the farmer spoke directly to farmers, there was the implication that they were the custodians of an idealised Britain that was wholesome, pure and untouched by the corrupting forces of modernisation. On the face of it, at least, the rural idyll seems untouched by the bomb. The countryside looks much the same, the film's narrator tells the viewer. Before warning, nonetheless, there is danger in every place where fallout has come down. The farmer is told that he can eventually emerge from his shelter to get on with his jobs, but he should wear a hat and scarf and tuck his trousers into gumboots. He may also wish to plug his ears with cotton wool and wear a pair of goggles. Thus the pastoral beauty of the countryside is spoiled by the nightmarish vision of the farmer stalking the fields, muffled and plugged. But the central message of the film is work, and even though he cuts an apocalyptic figure, the farmer is still out on the land, labouring and producing and providing for the urban survivors, who are told to stay in their homes, and who, when they do emerge, would be desperate for food. It seems that the planners envisage the urban survivors as either a burden on the state, or, if they manage to leave the city, 
a zombie-like horde of refugees descending on small towns and villages in search of sustenance. On the other hand, home defence and the farmer appeals to the old-fashioned notion that country folk are made of hardy stuff and will not riot or panic, but will instead tuck their trousers into their gumboots and get to it. So, back to threads. We see figures on the land who are bundled up in this way. Scarfs and boots and sunglasses, hacking at the earth with hoes and rakes and whatever equipment they've been able to find. They are all swaddled in scarfs, balaclavas, ski masks. Obviously, this makes them look very sinister. The guy in the balaclava reminds me of a bank robber or a terrorist. They look frightening and they gouge at the ground in silence. So much for farming being seen as a job tinged with romanticism. There are no soft rolling hills here, no tinkling of cowbells, no gentle whinnying of horses, no coaxing tender shoots from the earth. It's all hacking and scraping and gouging. And it's all hopeless. The eerie blue text reappears on the screen to set out the dangers brought by the pouring in of UV light. Cataracts widespread, higher risk of cancers and leukaemias. We see another labourer who's working the land. This one is draped in a black cloth, wearing it over his head like a cloak. He looks medieval. They scrape at the earth, but it yields them nothing. It's like the land is punishing them. See what you've done to me. The on-screen text tells us that the second and Subsequent harvests will be harmed by three factors. No fertilisers, no agrochemicals, crops susceptible to viruses, diseases and insects. And then we see some very short, horrible scenes here showing insects swarming, feasting, rejoicing on the glut of dead Britain. They are not only gathering on the dying and diseased crops, but we see them on corpses, crawling around on a foot and massing in the teeth of a blackened skull. Whilst the population are dying out and weakening, the insects are thriving. That reminds me of a booklet I found which was mocking civil defence measures in the 80s. And it reminded us that one helpful suggestion for survivors after nuclear war was that they indulge in vigorous fly-swatting campaigns. And we can see here why that might have been thought necessary, but at the same time, how futile it would have been. The scene changes and we get more of that blue text on screen. This has largely replaced dialogue by now in the film, because we can no longer rely on our characters to deliver information to us. We can't even rely on them to stay alive. So here, 
the glowing blue text tells us that three to eight years after the attack, Britain's population reaches its lowest level. It says UK numbers may decline to medieval levels, possibly between four and eleven million. Then we take a big leap forward in time. Ten years after the attack, we see two black hunched figures working the land. This is Ruth and her daughter. Again, it's the same bent figures scraping at the earth with hoes and rakes. Again, the same spiky, blackened trees. So nothing really has changed since we saw those images in the second harvest after the attack. Ten years on, and there is no progress, no development. We still have hunched, swaddled figures trying to force some life from the ruined land. In fact, forget the idea of progress, because surely we have actually regressed. Because in the very first harvest after the attack, we saw some efforts being made at restarting farm machinery. But now, all the remaining fuel has gone, and so we slip backwards. Every leap forwards in time takes us further backwards in progress. We are going the wrong way. And what better way to demonstrate how far we are slipping back into darkness and incivility than to show us Ruth's daughter? One of the bent, hunched figures who is farming collapses on the ground, exhausted, no doubt, by the relentless labour. This is Ruth. And the person who slowly walks over to her and regards her with a blank, uninterested expression, that is her daughter, Jane. There is no concern for her mother, no worry for her well-being, just a pause and an acknowledgement that something out of the ordinary has happened. This figure who labours beside me every day has suddenly fallen to the ground. Before we go on, there is something perhaps unusual at this point in the film, and I'd like your opinion on it. I've never noticed it before. It was someone else who pointed it out to me. I think it was at the Hack Green bunker showing of Threads last year. When Ruth collapses and Jane slowly, reluctantly walks towards her and then stands over her with that cold stare, well, when Jane moves toward Ruth, we hear a male voice off camera saying something that sounds like, that's it, nice and slow. And we must wonder, is that a mistake? Is that an assistant director or someone off camera giving a direction to Jane to to walk slowly towards Ruth? Well, I put the headphones on and I cranked the volume up to maximum and it does sound like a male Yorkshire-accented voice saying, as Jane walks over towards Ruth, nice and slow, Christ's sake, don't spoil it for me. That is what I hear at that moment. I don't know why. 
Is it a director or assistant director off camera that we're not supposed to hear? Or is it just jumbled shards of dialogue from the farm workers that we're not really supposed to be zooming in on, like obsessives trying to hear every single word, but because we are obsessed with threads, <laughs> that's exactly what we're doing. So that does sound like maybe a, a little odyssey at that point in the film. But it happens as Jane takes her first steps towards Ruth, if you want to look it up in the film. In the next scene, Ruth is in her bed. Well, we call it a bed. It's just some kind of makeshift bed piled with rags. She and Jane seem to have set up home here in a, in a ruined barn. And Ruth lies unconscious on this miserable filthy bed. I assume that she'd managed to crawl or stagger here by herself, because I can't imagine the cold and soulless Jane lending her an arm or a shoulder. So Ruth lies here looking absolutely dreadful. She has been, of course, prematurely aged by by everything, <laughs> by horror, by stress, by starvation, by hard labour, and of course by the, the cancers brought by the nuclear winter. Her hair is grey and crinkled, her skin is dry, and her eyes are misty with cataracts. She looks wizened and grimy and ancient. As she lies there, Jane prods her roughly, trying to get her up for work. Here's a clip. Ruth. Ruth. Work. 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 Oh. Jane is <laughs> prodding her in the same rough way that she'd been poking and prodding at the earth. So the only concern that poor Ruth gets here from her daughter is concern that there's been some kind of change in routine. Jane is surely thinking, we get up, we go to the fields, we work. For some reason, Ruth is failing to get up. There's no worry, there's no crying, no concern for her mother. There's just a kind of perplexed attitude. Why is she not getting up? Ruth, up, work. But can we expect Jane to feel affection and tenderness and worry for her mother? Because after all, what does mother mean to Jane? To me and to you, of course, I hope, if you're lucky, the word mother means, well, for me, sitting on my grand's knee when I was a child with her reading me ladybird books and then maybe singing me to sleep, making me dinner, combing my wet hair by the fire. Mother, or in my case grandmother, means love and warmth and stories and prayers and songs and someone to drape your school pinafore and green woolly tights over the radiator on frosty mornings so that they're warm when you put them on. Of course, poor Jane has had none of these things. The film doesn't show us her early childhood. We leap from her birth to ten years on, but we can safely assume there have been no 
cuddles and songs and walks in the park and trips to the seaside, no being tucked into bed, no being told good night, God bless. So what is a mother to Jane? Is it just a figure who works and sleeps beside her? So Jane is poking at Ruth. Get up, get up. And that eventually rouses her. Ruth opens her misty eyes and she lifts her hand to Jane and manages to rear her head up off the pillow slightly to take one last look at her daughter. She touches her hand and Jane's only reaction is to look down at Ruth's hand, touching hers with a a kind of bland curiosity. Like, what's this? Why is this labourer touching my hand with her hand? Then Ruth falls back onto her pillow and she dies. And I'm glad that she's dead. I have been willing Ruth to die since the bomb dropped. Just give up. I have urged her throughout the film. Just lie down and give up. But she can't, of course, because she has had her child to look after. And now, at the moment of her death, all she gets in return from that child is blankness. Jane observes the dead Ruth, the dead fellow labourer, and there's no ordinary human response to a death. There's no weeping, praying, no last touch of the hand on the forehead. No, instead Jane just rummages beneath Ruth's filthy pillow to see what she can take. She lifts a hairbrush and a scarf and she leaves. As she's rummaging, she sees Ruth's treasured copy of Jimmy's book, the handbook of foreign birds, but she doesn't take that. What use is a book to her? Does she even know what a book is? We assume she's never been taught to read. And all those weird, colourful birds inside, they'll mean nothing to her. Most animals are dead. She's probably never seen a sparrow, let alone an exotic bird flushed with reds and greens and golds. So Jane takes her loot and she leaves, leaving Ruth lying there dead, alone with Jimmy's book tucked beneath her pillow. The presence of that book shows the gulf between mother and daughter. All these years, through the ultimate horror, Ruth has clung to this memento of Jimmy. Whereas Jane, she would have no idea why you would do such a thing. Memories, sentimentality, fondness, love. No, she's been reared in a world where you are nothing but a labourer. You provide labour, you are rewarded with food. Nothing exists outside that grim circle. The obvious love that Ruth has for Jane, that can't penetrate that circle. And even if it did, she would be baffled by it. This is not a world for women who carry treasured mementos of their dead fiancés. There is no room for such people. And there is no mercy for such people. I say again that I'm glad Ruth is dead. Wow.
Okay, this is the music which ushers in the next scene. A TV has been set up in what looks like an old, dusty lecture theatre. And it's playing a video of an old kids' programme called Words and Pictures to a glum, miserable collection of children. Words and Pictures was a BBC educational programme made by BBC Schools. And it ran from 1970 to 2007. Although I don't remember it from childhood, the BBC shows that we watched at school when a, when a lumbering old TV on a trolley would be wheeled into the music room were you and me and zigzag. I've got no recollection of words and pictures. The programme was aimed at improving children's literacy and was aimed at very young school children between five and seven. And that's interesting because the sad collection of kids who are watching it in threads look more like teenagers. One of them is Jane, who we know is at least 10 or maybe 11 by now. So there, another obvious sign that we're going backwards. The level of education once deemed appropriate for the infant classes is now being shown to the teenagers. But at least an attempt at education is being made. But judging by the expressions on the young people's faces as they watch, total blankness and incomprehension, it's a sadly wasted effort. I suppose kids first begin learning reading at home, long before they go to school, long before organised education enters their lives. They're already trying to read the words on the tins in the kitchen, or the streets and shop signs, or having a parent read a book to them. These post-nuclear kids have had none of that. None at all. They've just been thrown cold into this BBC Schools programme, which might as well be being broadcast from another planet. It means nothing to them. But the adults who have organised this feeble attempt at education, well... We must forgive them because they don't have the time or the energy to draw up lesson plans and concoct new ways of teaching. The best they can do is herd some of the kids into a room and slap an old video on. It might not be teaching the children anything of note, but does it offer a glimmer of hope? Because it shows that adults, somewhere, are thinking of the younger generation. They're thinking of the future. So can we scrape some hope from that? Well, I say no. The adults who organised this viewing of words and pictures will soon, if they're like Ruth, sicken and die. And with them will go the last connection to quaint old ideas like gathering children in a school to educate them the passing on of knowledge, the love of literature, it will vanish with that older generation, leaving society populated by these dead-eyed teenagers who have never known love or sustenance or ladybird books. It makes me think of a scene in When the Wind Blows which always breaks my heart and yet chills me at the same time. It's when Jim is 
proudly reminiscing about the war and the heroism of the Blitz and the courage of old Monty. And his wife pops her head around the kitchen door to remind him that that was all a long time ago, dear. Won't Monty be dead by now? Oh, I suppose he must be. Well, who's in charge now, dear? And he doesn't know. And the ghost of Monty, with whom he'd been laughing and celebrating in his imagination, suddenly falls quiet and sad and pats Jim on the back as if to say, Good luck, you'll need it. And he disappears. That's what this makes me think of. All the good guys are dead. And who is left to pull us through this? Of course, when the theme tune to Words and Pictures is playing, the uh, the picture and the sound is very crackly. And that's, of course, a sign that radiation has damaged the film. Now, even though the children probably don't understand much of the video, they are, nonetheless, absolutely wrapped. Every kid has their eyes glued to the screen. There's no need here for a teacher to be patrolling the class to make sure no one is chatting or misbehaving. No, this class is ludicrously obedient. Unnaturally obedient. If what you want from your pupils is dead-eyed silence. So is it the novelty of the thing which holds it attention? Or is it simply a, a kind of disaster syndrome? Are these kids apathetic, depressed, blunt to any emotion or any curiosity because of the hideous, brutal world they live in and the constant malnutrition that they've suffered? We can see apathy in their faces, but also in the fact that they sit silently amidst dust and filth Every surface in the lecture theatre here is coated in white, gritty dust. There's so much of it that the TV set and the video player have had a, a protective plastic cover thrown over them. Another sign that someone in the older generation cares enough to gather these children for a meagre education, but also sees the need to care for the TV, to protect it as far as possible, knowing that there will not be a replacement. So someone, somewhere, is caring and organising. But as I said earlier, when this person and those like them soon pass away, is the cause going to be taken up by these shocked, stunned, blank young people? I don't think so. The attempts here at care and education of the young has come too late. It could hardly have come earlier, as the older generation were, like Ruth, fighting to stay alive. Now, ten years on, when there's a, a bit of time, a bit of space, it is simply too late. We might also wonder where the very young children are. Words and Pictures was, after all, aimed at five to seven-year-olds. Well, where are they? Maybe the answer was given earlier in the film, when the narrator told us that in the first bitter winter after the bomb, most of the very young and the very old disappear from Britain. 
And that is the end of our four minutes. I've actually run slightly over into the next four, but I think you'll forgive me. You might like to know that there is a new bonus podcast episode uploaded now. It's another look at 1980s nuclear pop. This time I've chosen the song Russians by Sting. And you can find that right now at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me thank and welcome my newest patron, Graham. And if you like the extract from my book about the the nightmarish post-nuclear farmer, you can buy it as a hardback, ebook, or audiobook. It's called Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War. You can get that at any bookshop, or you can buy a signed copy from me directly at juliemcdowell.com. <laughs>